listening to Soul Knox Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Icara. And uh, this is, uh, what what episode is this? I should have checked before I started recording. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is episode number 23, so uh, second episode of the year. Uh, the last episode was the one I did with Ralph Schmidt from Ulta. It was a great one. Uh, I want, you know, I'm thankful for Ralph coming on and, uh, looking forward to our next, next, uh, next time. But, uh, this week is gonna be a little bit different. Uh, it's gonna be a solo episode because I wasn't able to put anything together for this week. Um, but, uh, basically I'm going to do an episode about The Lord of the Rings. Uh, The Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite things to exist, you could say. That's what I like to say about certain things. It's like, it's up there in the, the top echelons of things I love. And, um, yeah, the, uh, I just listened to the, uh, so to an audiobook version of the, of the, um, the book, of audiobook version of the book, <laughs> however you want to say that. Um, I'm not sure exactly which edition, um, but, uh, I think it it came out after the movies, but I know there's one um, where um, with um, what's his name? Um, fuck, the guy who did the Gollum's voice did did a audiobook of uh, Lord of the Rings, but it wasn't that one. It was a different one. Um, but it was very good. It had the music from the movies as well. Uh, maybe it came out at the time the movies came out. I don't know, but. Uh, it was very good uh, audiobook. Um, the uh, reader kind of uh, did voices and stuff like that, and they had sounds for what was going on. It was very, uh, very immersive experience listening to it, and it was great to listen while I worked. And um, uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, Lord of the Rings, uh, which I'll get, you know, I'll get more into, but it's something that I've uh, particularly. Uh, for a long time, from my teenage years uh, until uh, I don't know, I I pretty much uh, there was a period where I'd actually read the Lord of the Rings every year, um, and if not every year, every other year. It's been a little bit longer than that since I read them uh, last, but uh, still not that long, three or four years. So you could say uh, I know almost every single thing in in the books like by heart. But uh, it's still one of those things that uh, I never get tired of of returning to. So we're going to get more into that here in just a little bit. Um, Before I get started, I, of course, want to uh, give a shout-out to the um, horsemen of the podcast, Apocalypse. On Mondays, we have Brandon Legion with Horror Wolf 666. Um, Great horror podcast with interviews. Um, and also like uh, top ten lists and things like this that he does. I'm gonna have Brandon on pretty soon. I gotta set a date with him, and we're gonna get that get that done. Uh, it'd be great to catch up with Brandon. Um, then uh, Tuesdays we got into the Necrosphere with Jackie Smith, um, the best metal podcast out there. Wednesdays we have Everything Went Black with Mike Hill. Um, that's kind of his uh, Whatever Goes podcast. Talks about a lot of different stuff on there. Mike uh, 
will be on the podcast next week. We're going to be talking about uh, Wolf's Head by Robert E. Howard for the Eldritch Tales series that we do. Then uh, Thursday is Necromaniacs, also with uh, Mike Hill, as well as Mike Scandato and uh, Jeff Kashid. And, uh, yeah, I got to get Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid on on this podcast, so I'm try to get that arranged here soon. And Necromaniacs is uh, my favorite horror podcast. And uh, they just covered uh, the movie Vampires, uh, which I love. It's from the 70s. It's got, um, what was her name? Miriam Wool. I forget what the, uh, I forget the main actress's name now. I almost had it. But it has Anolka, who was a Playboy playmate back in the day and everything. And um, Very good. Like, in my top three, uh, Euro horror from the 70s, you know, that one and Fascination by John Rowland and uh, Daughters of Darkness, of course, that's it, number one. But um, yeah, great episode, go check it out. And then uh, at intermittent times, we got Iblis Manifestations from Cheyenne of Trivax. So uh, he does a lot of primarily uh, interview episodes of primarily guys from uh, black metal bands and uh, talk about a lot of great things on there and uh so yeah go uh check everybody out uh follow everyone on on facebook instagram and uh you know spotify or whatever your podcast uh app is you know and um you know give everybody five star ratings and uh give that to me too if you want i don't care man you know i do care but you know it's nice if you do do a five star but i'm not gonna sit there and you know, beg for it or something, like some people do. Um, and yeah, every you can pretty much find everybody on uh, on on Instagram and stuff by just looking up, um, you know, horror wolf. Um, I think Brandon's is Brandon Legion six six six, but horror wolf six 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 on uh, Facebook. And then you got like uh, in the necrosphere, everything went black, necromaniacs, endless manifestations. You can just type those in, and then you can um. Um, follow me at Denver Underground Radio, and also uh, my my own um, page, which is Carl K A R L Hikara H A I K A R A. You can find me there. Um, yeah. The uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me about it. You know, the episodes or whatever. Uh, it's nice to uh, nice to hear people uh, are enjoying the podcast. I had. A, few, a couple of people reach out to me, and it's, it's nice. Definitely, um, you know, it's all. Even if you just have a handful of people listening, I, I it's nice because you know, I'm used to doing the radio st- uh, station, and no one really listens. You just kind of do it for yourself, and it's the same thing with podcasts in a way that, um, to a certain extent, if you're you gotta do it because you want to do it, you know, and because uh, you get something out of it, I think first and foremost and that's probably the uh good thing to think about in life in general um but yeah we're gonna get into this episode about the lord of the rings um i've also been listening to uh once i finished lord of the rings i was like man i want to listen to some more fantasy audiobooks but i don't really want to pay for them <laughs> at least not right now i gotta wait for my audible credit or something i don't know 
some of these uh, audiobooks are a little a little pricey, I think. Um, so, yeah. But on uh, YouTube, I found um, a few things. I found um, uh, some somebody had read out some Carl Edward Wagner short stories from the Kane series. Those are real good. And then uh, right now I'm in the process of listening to the Robert Jordan Conan books. And I think that I've read at least the first couple um, a long time ago. I remember getting the uh, like a collection of the first three, and uh, maybe at the library. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, I was a kid. I barely remember them. So you know, I'm reading those now or listening to them while I work. It's been enjoyable. They're not bad. Uh, definitely, I'd say Robert Jordan's uh, Conan stories are better than a lot of the. Uh, Lynn Carter, El Sprague de Camp ones, who I feel like sometimes are a little, a little lame, but, uh, you know, the, uh, Robert Jordan one's pretty good, um, if, if anybody has read the Wheel of Time series, which I have, uh, at least once, I worked my way through it once, uh, you know, the, he has, uh, some preoccupations with, like, the War of the Sexes and all that kind of stuff that does crop up in, uh, uh, Conan books, but you know they're fun, good stories. Uh, first two followed a kind of similar pattern, and I was worried that uh, they're all gonna kind of be like this, the same pattern. But the third one is uh, turning out to be pretty different, and uh, I'm enjoying it the best out of all of them. It has a guy, a cultist guy who worships chaos as the main villain. It's great. Like he uh, he runs a kind of a thing that the described it's almost like the Hera Krishnas, it's the cult of doom. And they uh but but secretly he's actually like, you know, sacrificing he's like a necromancer and sacrificing like bodies to people like in their blood and creating like you know, revenants and stuff and worshipping chaos. It's great. It's very black metal. So I'm enjoying this one. But yeah, so I'm going to get into the episode. Um, we're going to start off with, um, I'm going to play, both the songs tonight are going to be both Summoning, who was the, I think, the quintessential Lovecraft, not Lovecraft, uh, quintessential Tolkien black metal band. Qu- pretty much quintessential Tolkien band. There's no other band I can think who's talking about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and stuff that's any good, except for uh, Summoning. You know, some bands do certain songs, like, you know, Horna and Azag Hall and stuff, but, uh, you know, for a band that's kind of based around this, uh, Summoning is the best band, you know, pants down. So, um, we're going to start off with a song from my favorite album by Summoning, which is Minus Morgul, and the song is called Morthond. And then, uh, yeah, at the end we'll be playing... Uh, over Old Hills from my second favorite summoning album, which is Dol Gador. All right, I'm going to play this song, and then we'll come back, and I'll be uh, talking Lord of the Rings. Hail Satan.
So, like I uh, like I said at the beginning, um, Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite things, you know, and uh, has been for most of my life. I remember my dad uh, reading aloud to me The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings as a as a kid, and um, so you know, definitely introduced to it pretty early on. And um, when I got a little bit older, where I could read them, um, I did. And uh, definitely, you know, when you're a kid, I think that uh, probably like The Hobbit a little bit more when you're like, you know. I mean, I read The Hobbit probably was like seven or eight or something. And um, But then when you get older, you grow and you, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings became my favorite. And then... Uh, also, you know, eventually learned to love the Silmarillion as well. Silmarillion was definitely a little bit more like, kind of like with Lovecraft, where you kind of have to to get used to it. Once you kind of fall into the um, to fall into the language and and the way that it's written, you know, you can read Silmarillion just as easy as anything. And I think that most people who have problems with the Lord of the Rings or Silmarillion or something like that, it's, I mean. Uh, it's because they just don't have that ability, maybe, or they don't have the patience to to learn how to read something in a different kind of tone than what they're used to. But, you know, I think particularly the Silmarillion is written in a style very similar to um, and modeled after a lot of uh, literature of the North, like the sagas and these types of things. And those as well are similar. Once you get into the rhythm of them and you read it, you know, you can get to the point where you can read the Icelandic sagas like they're, you know, a normal novel. And I definitely can do that. And, you know, sometimes maybe it takes a little bit, you know, to fall into the rhythm. And once you, and you kind of got to get in the worldview and the mindset. And, you, and um, I think it's good to do that kind of stuff because it challenges the reader to to think in a different way and uh that's something that i think is important and uh you know i i get it if somebody doesn't really like the lord of the rings because they think it's too complicated or whatever but you know i don't never really thought that personally i, I don't know the um but uh you know i've also read them a million times so you know you know the characters back and forth and the events and the world um i'm not going to really uh like go through the story per se with this i kind of want to talk about just talk about my thoughts about lord of the rings uh, some of the themes and everything that i feel from them from the books and um Mainly talking about the the trilogy. We'll kind of brush upon The Hobbit and The Silmarillion as well. But um, the focus of this one is going to be on The Lord of the Rings. You know, if I want to talk about The Silmarillion, that's something kind of separate that uh, needs to be talked about on its own. And to a certain extent, The Hobbit, although it can be kind of included in this a little bit more. But, um, yeah, some of the things, speaking of, like, style... That's one thing that I was really noticing listening to an audiobook version of The Lord of the Rings when you read it aloud is the the way that the the, the language and the rhythm of the text and the way that it's phrased changes throughout the, throughout. And this is something I started thinking about um is that much like a lot of other kind of texts of 
modern post-World War One, you know, forms of modernism, even though I don't think that Tolkien himself would see it this way. Um, the text itself and the language of the text changes depending on the setting and the characters and the, what's going on. So, you know, when you start off and you're in Hobbiton and at the end when you're in Hobbiton, it's told in a way that's a little bit more, I don't know, like, it's different. It's like, uh, like I would say the first part of The Lord of the Rings is told a little bit more like The Hobbit in a way, um, but it's it's a little bit more uh, down to earth, a little bit more earthy, you know, that kind of different type of language you know and uh but then when you get into certain sections like say uh the writer anything with the writer's rohan it falls into this other cadence and um you have these sections where he's using um the elements of old english and old norse like poetry with alliteration stuff and things like this and the type of rhythm of uh old english poetry is written into the text itself as they're describing, say, the, the writers of Rohan riding across and, you know, um, and I think that's interesting that it does shift, this language shifts and changes, you know, when you have the sections with Sam and Frodo, when they're by themselves going into Mordor, it shifts back to these different, um, different type of, uh, language and use of language, that is, again, more in continuation of the kind of text of the Hobbiton parts. But then, uh, yeah, whenever you're with, say, um, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think. But then there are certain sections in the center where you got um, them, you know, writing across that is sp spoken in a kind of medium where it's not quite the full-on kind of Old Norse type of text um, of the Rohirrim sections, but then it's like kind of a different type of type of language used, you know, and um, often it's gets a little bit more high uh, language when he's trying to um, describe the, the depth of history and time within the stories, uh, which is very effective in my opinion. But yeah, I find it interesting how it shifts and changes throughout the book. Um, and I think it's effective as well, in my opinion. And um, I mean, I don't think that Tolkien would have cited himself with the uh, the modernists, like with T.S. Eliot or something. But at the same time, um, there's an element, you know, where a lot of modernist literature that you have, like three novels and... Um, different um uh, what's that one the sleepwalkers i can't remember the author of the sleepwalkers is playing off the top of my head but you know a lot of these authors of modernist literature would do these types of things where um depending on the subject and and the time and everything it would the language would be written in completely different ways to reflect the object of the uh or the subject being spoken of or whatever the subjectivity of of it you know and um, I think that the way Tolkien's taking this is uh, a little bit different because his roots are more um, embodied in the kind of old uh, literature. Um, you know, he's a, a linguist, this linguistics, you know, he's involved with learning Old Norse and, you know, bases Elvish off of Finnish, and he's very, like, deep into the to the sagas and everything and that 
that follows through with the writing. So it's not really modernist in the sense of, you know, these modernist writers trying to reflect some type of modern world. That's kind of using a similar technique as modernism, but in a kind of anti-modernist way, which I find very interesting. The, um, <clears throat> which I think plays into um, certain elements of it, which a Tolkien himself was very against the idea of seeing the Lord of the Rings as allegory. And I would agree with that. I don't think it's straight allegory. Like, um, like the kind of inanity of uh, C.S. Lewis and his um, Narnia s series, where it basically becomes like straight, like kind of lame Christian uh, allegory by the end. You know, Tolkien wasn't about that. He didn't. He didn't want people to be reading into the to the stories like, you know, oh Sauron is Hitler, etc. <clears throat> but I do think that, <clears throat> regardless of that, so much of the story. I do think reflects um, his experience in life. I mean, he was a man who fought at the Battle of the Somme. And this actually kind of connects in a weird way to um, the subject of one of my episodes a few weeks ago, which is Ernst Jünger and the Storm, you know, a Storm of Steel. But, I mean, they were facing each other on the Somme at the same time. You know, they're both experiencing this horror. And they both had a kind of similar reaction to it of um um i guess more of a wanting to be grounded in a more old type of way an old love of nature and these types of things you know and um <clears throat> i think that uh tolkien saw the absolute destruction of modern warfare and the, the horror and the mud and the desolation and the d wanton destruction of of you know nature and you know people hewing trees down to sort of fun uh, just to do it particularly i'm sure when the germans um retreated from the somme to the uh, siegfried line they uh kind of did this wanton destruction and um and like uh booby trapping everything in between so that uh when the english and the french were Entering into that area was just a wasteland, you know. I mean, to the point that Junger himself spoke upon it um, disapprovingly uh, himself. You know, he also he was on the German side and felt like it was a disapproving, uh, wanton destruction. I believe when I did the episode, I read that, and he's talking about um, how it reflects the kind of materialistic culture. And I think Tolkien would have agreed. Um, and I think that that shows through whenever he's describing like the orcs, you know. Uh, through every page of this of the book, you can see uh, Tolkien's absolute love and reverence of nature and of um, old things and old ways of life, and you know, like I guess living more with life as opposed to you know this industrial revolution the type of warfare that, you know, destroys and just completely decimates all and, you know. Uh, and this is part of why I do think the, the importance of The Lord of the Rings, because it still speaks to us in the modern age, you know. It's like, the things he's talking upon, I think, are are always important, and no more so than now. I mean, we can look at the the world around us and 
the way that man wantonly destroys nature and pollutes it and does all these things and and for what reason sometimes you know usually it's greed and if you look at the lord of the rings that's the um deepest one of the biggest things in the books is is talking about greed you know greed and um is a, a mo- very much a motivating factor to pushing people into this kind of uh, megalomaniacal egotism that uh, is very much tied to the figure of Sauron. And I, uh, <clears throat> there is a point, I, remember, I think it's in uh, the appendix or maybe Unfinished Tales where Tolkien even says something about how um, kind of making a link between certain parts of a modern industrial society and saying that it's just the uh, saying that uh, it's the same type of um, whispering spirit of Sauron you know and and uh, you could see that you could even look at it like in that way that Sauron is this representative of this force that uh, that seeks to to control and dominate and destroy um, and, uh, and has inordinate amounts of greed you know and uh, knows how to hit all the um, the weaknesses of men and, and elves and everything. And, of course, the ring itself as being a creation of his and having taken in all of his uh, his his attributes shares in these, um, these things and works upon men in this way. You know, their pride, their greed, all those types of things. Um... So you could see that as being one way that it speaks to the modern age, but then another way is you could look at the um, Sauron with the all-seeing eye, right? And uh, in the kind of totalitarian <clears throat> uh, system that he's created, he's created in Mordor, you know, that uh, always looking and watching and... Um, and you know imprisoning any who dare to um stand against him and all this kinds of stuff or the way that uh saruman is in uh, hobbiton you know at the end all this stuff i think is very evocative of of the kind of modern totalitarian state that is uh i think the first stirrings of that was in world war Two with hitler and uh stalin you know and uh, definitely, even though I don't think it's allegory, I don't think that Sauron is meant to be Hitler or whatever. But it's still a similar type of um, type of mentality that he sh- he's um, kind of talking about, I think. And uh, I do definitely think that the uh, element at the end with Saruman is very much um, a critique of, uh, you know, when he's the raising of the Shire, I think it's very much a critique of particularly cap um communism and that kind of stalinist type of type of state where it just seeks to to you know it'll take nice things and destroy them and give people like this shitty little apartment blocks you know and steal all their all their food and hoard it away and say that's for equal distribution but then it doesn't distribute to anybody but the chiefs you know this is very much the way of communism you know and uh, I do think that it's very thinly veiled and that it may not be allegory, but it's definitely um, close to it in that section. But, um, you know, then 
I do think that makes it Lord of the Rings very much a modern uh, piece of literature. You know, it's taking its roots are deep into history and past and the sagas and all these things. But then he's he's taking the modern things that we in his experience and and in his time and crafting something that is part of why I think that it speaks to so many people. And I do think that another part of it is that not only does it have all these elements to it that speak to us on that level, but then it's also creating a truly immersive world for us to get lost in. So it creates that that fan escapism as well as being something that speaks directly to actual experience. And that's what sets it apart from just pure entertainment and puts it into the state of, of absolute art, you know. It's both escapist. You can escape into this fantasy world and and everything. And you know, definitely have been times in my life where I wished that I could uh, escape into Lord of the Rings. You know, although I think that I would probably want to escape into the world of Conan a little bit more. But um, you know, you feel that feeling of there's there's such an intense energy and feeling in the books and, and the world that he's created. It really carries through and i think that you can look at the purity and intensity of that vision that he created when you look at the fact that you know i read these books what's from when i was a kid i read them again all the way through before the movies came out and the thing that shocked me was when you go to see the movies i mean there's a lot of them in them in them particularly story-wise that i don't like uh <clears throat> which would be a subject to its own. But there's a lot that I do like, and what I like most of all is just the um, the visuals and the way that they brought uh, Middle-earth to life in those movies. And uh, it's there's certain scenes in the movies that's exactly how I imagined it in my head. And, of course, you can also see artists like Alan Lee who created images that are exactly like what I saw in my head when I read it the first time without any of that, you know, and I think that holds to the purity and intensity of the vision that uh, Tolkien had created. It feels like he really did tap into some other level of reality and brought forth these 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 images and this this text, you know, in the world that he created. Because the same feeling I feel when I read the Silmarillion, you know, and I think that um, there's something to be said for that. I think he definitely part of why I think it's an important work. And of course, you had the fact that it created, you know, vast amounts of, of uh, people trying to do similar things, I guess you could say, like rip-offs of Tolkien. I mean, there was so many rip-offs of Tolkien out there, and some of them are kind of enjoyable, you know. Uh, you know, they create their own thing, but most of them fall into the category of, you know, pure entertainment as opposed to art, you know, in my opinion. And of course you can have pure entertainment and it's and it's still worthwhile. I'm not saying that it, uh, to de to degrade those things, but you know, there's a difference. So hopefully people understand what I mean. But um yeah, so I think that's why Lord of the Rings hit this kind of very uh, social zeitgeist type of feeling that started in the 60s and never really ended, you know. And, uh, I don't know, there's just endless amounts of, of things to be found in the books. 
I've read them so many times and every time I read them I'm just um deeply immersed into this world that he created and um and the characters, you know. Uh some of my favorite parts of the books is um I really love the whole section with Fangorn and the Ents. I love the Ents, the tree, tree guardians, you know. They're, and the way that they are, I think, is perfect. Like this, uh, very much feels like, feels like if there was a embodiment of the, of the forest, it would be like the Ents, as how they are. And they, um, it's very, always very satisfying every time you get to it and they go and, destroy Isengard and, you know, uh, lay low Saruman. It's always, for me, a very satisfying section of the book. And it's funny, no matter how times I've read the book, I always get upset in the part where Gandalf falls into the, uh, the abyss in Moria. And, you know, you know he's going to come back as Gandalf the White in the next book and everything, but you still feel a little sad and uh you can imagine how the how the other characters felt in that moment and everything like that you know and um the whole section of moria i always feel is very powerful and you can really feel the weight of ages um the dust of ages the dust of time in those sections and uh the horror i think that's one of the, the things that's great about lord of the rings is that there's so much horror in them the whole section through Moria feels that way with the drums in the dark, you know, drums in the deep. That whole part, like, it really builds, he, Tolkien masterfully builds, like, this tension and horror in that section, you know, in the same way that you would have in a, in a horror movie where first, okay, they go and uh, find the passage and find the bones and, all the stuff and they find the book and the book saying uh, trapped in the dark and or trapped or trapped or whatever and then um talking with the, the drums in the deep or whatever and then then that very thing starts happening to them you know creates a very good sense of dread and and uh i always love that section and of course he also creates a lot of horror in the whole parts with uh mordor the description of Mordor, and uh, I mean, I always get very tense in the whole section with Shelob. Of course, what I think is is fascinating about Lord of the Rings is um, even with how mighty Sauron is, he's just a uh, you know still nothing compared to Morgoth, the original enemy in the similar Silmarillion. The same thing with Shelob. She's Shelob's just a kind of child of Ungoliath who's, you know, a thousand times worse and, you know, uh, drank the tree of Eleanor and everything. You know, it's kind of... I was thinking about that when I was re listening to it the last time of the fact that no matter how, like, fucking disgusting Shelob is, she's still nothing compared to uh, Ungoliath from the first stage. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, and the thing that's interesting about that too is that Shelob isn't really a big spider, but it's it's actually like a kind of entity that took the form of a spider. Um, that is a kind of entity of darkness, actually, which I think is interesting. Uh, I picked that up on this recent read. 
Um, and the, um, was insane. I do think that's one interesting thing, uh, that, uh, a lot of people talk about, um, Lord of the Rings and all this stuff being very, like, Christian, uh, which I don't necessarily think that it really is. Certainly, in a way, Morgoth could be seen as a satanic figure, that's for sure. And there is that element of Christian in that. In that, But what's really interesting is that, particularly when you read the Silmarillion and you read the creation and the way that the... Um, the Vala and everything are described. The uh the whole thing kinda reminds me hundred percent of uh African mythology. Uh because it's in the same thing. There's even um I'm trying to remember the one uh uh kind of the one being that is uh I forget her name because I haven't read Silmarine in a little bit, but she's like the uh green earth and everything. And it reminds me very much of um, there's a being uh, one of the um, uh, Esh, no, um, uh, Yorisha, Orisha. There's an Orisha in uh, African mythology that corresponds exactly the same thing as there's another one of them that is almost exactly the same as Chango, for example. And it's kind of all down the board. Almost every one of the the Vala he talks about are uh, correspond to uh, Orishas of the African, and even his description of the god, uh, the godhead, so to say, is pretty much the same as in African mythology. So I'm curious if um, if um, curious if if uh, Tolkien was. This knew that about African mythology. I'd imagine he probably is aware. But it's interesting because, yeah, that's built into the world of the Lord, of, uh, you know, the Silmarillion and Middle-earth and everything is this very much, very African kind of uh, religion element to it. And um, I think I always just found that very interesting once I, once I started learning more about... Um, at first, you know, you'd think that all oh, their, like... Angels, but they're not angels. Uh, you know, angels don't, uh, you know, create earth and, you know, tend to it and do all this stuff and, you know, are representative of uh, nat- natural things like water and uh, and uh, and lightning and shit. You know, that that's like ancient gods. And so, obviously, they're based upon old pagan gods in a way. So, in a way... Uh, He's really presenting um, something very primal in the story, in the books, and in terms of the cosmology that uh, relates to very ancient forms of religion, you know. And so you could see as succeeding ages go on, it becomes more and more down to earth. And I think that's the thing with the third age is that it's actually very very fallen from what occurred in the first age and then this age it's just the maya there's gandalf and uh sauron you know opposing each other and um after the third agents uh, even the elves pretty much all leave middle earth and just left to men and uh and hobbits maybe some dwarves you know and that's it 
And so the kind of affairs of things change. And um, there, I think that's the part of the story that, that always affects me very strongly is it's very, very sad. There is this sadness. You get to the end and it's bittersweet. You're like, yeah, you're happy that they that they won out in the end, you know. I don't I don't uh hold with any um work um more you know mordor like hewing of trees and fouling of of the streams and destroying of the world so you know I'm happy that they they beat him but but then you're sad at the same time cuz you feel that yeah um what was comet's past you know like and you feel this feeling throughout the book that the truly great heroic age is over. It's already over before the book even starts. We're not in the heroic age of the story anymore. Um, but at the same time, I think part of that's part of why it's the hobbits who destroy Sauron. It's presenting that sub, and then I think Tolkien is also saying in a way that, sure, this isn't the heroic age of Baron and Luthien and all this stuff, but no matter, um, it's just as much heroism in Hobbit crossing Mordor as there was in those actions in that age, and I do think that is part of what Tolkien is saying in it, and it's um, even the smallest you know, person can have great heroism and save the world, you know. And I think that's an interesting idea that he presents in it. Uh, there's an element of it that's obviously saying that I think you could see it as fate, maybe. He's presenting an idea of fate in the books. That, uh, <coughs> But I think not only is it fate, but obviously um, our own actions do... I think create that fate, and I think that some uh, a form of fate and destiny and all the stuff that uh, that is very similar to the ancient Nordic view of fate. And um, what I mean by that is their fates, the fate in the Nordic system would see kind of we're born and we die. There's you know. Erd and Skuld. And uh, Verdandi, uh, what is becoming, uh, what is now, is kind of, in a way, up to us. So in a certain way, our deaths are foretold, but how we get to our deaths is something that we don't know exactly. But we're, it's spinning around us at all times. So fate might bring us to certain uh, events, but how we, I guess, react and uh, what we choose to do in those events changes the uh, the thread of, of of our future. So you know, in the book, it's kind of like that that characters are brought to certain certain I think um, certain kind of um, events and um, brought together in certain ways. But it could also all go a whole different way. It's not really exactly like it's all faded. Like, oh, it's going to all end up the way it ended up. Probably at any point in time, it could have gone bad. But people chose the right things to do at the right times as well. You know, 
and uh and uh, people had a little bit of luck on e on their on their side and then that's what helped them beat Sauron in a way, you know. But if uh, maybe they had chosen to do something different, things could have been very different, you know. So I think that that's definitely an element of the story. That um, it's not all exactly foretold, you know. wasn't necessarily what happened. Isn't necessarily what was going could the only thing that could have happened, but more like. You know, at the end, for example, um, because of the way, you know, kind of wisdom of Aragorn and everybody, Gandalf, they knew they needed to take the eye off of Mordor and onto them. And uh, so they marched to the gates and with not very many men to do so. And, uh, you know, thus uh, letting Frodo and Sam have an empty plane of Gorgoth to cross, you know, to Mount Doom. Uh, so they managed to make the right choice that ended with that point. But at the same time, you know, could have been a providence of some sort, you know, maybe something, uh, some higher force was helping. Uh, it is hinted at in the books here and there. But I think a lot of it comes down to men making the right choice in the right situation. Um, and it is also the the plot construction of the novel is very well done in that way. One thing leads to another, and and everything kind of ties together in a way. It's definitely a very good, tight plot construction. I feel like the story very much up to, uh, up to a certain point uh, unfolds in a way that keeps you kind of very uh rooted to it and and you know wanting to know what's going to happen even every time even though i know what's going to happen i've read the books a million times it still feel that same feeling like that quickening of excitement in certain parts and uh you know need to keep reading so i always feel like that's a the sign of a great author and that they can still even if you read something a million times you still feel that same tension as you're reading uh, you know, Robert E. Howard is another master of that. When every time I read Conan stories, you know, I've read through them all a thousand times, and I will a thousand more. But I, I never get tired of it, and I always feel that same like tension and excitement when I read them, and I love it. Um, so yeah, you get that in Lord of the Rings as well. I would say that with Lord of the Rings uh, and the Return of the King. Towards the end, once you get past the, uh, you know, the fall of Sauron and everything, you have this kind of extended ending and the raising of the Shire and everything. I will say that uh, sometimes I don't read that section because it does kind of slow down a little bit. But um, it's still important. And and uh, I think it makes sense because it's... Uh, at the end, you know, it's kind of an afterward in a way. You could say that the main point of the story ends, and then there's this little afterward with the raising of the Shire and Frodo going to the Grey Havens. And I think the raising of the Shire was a kind of point where the hobbits had to kind of take, you know, it was it does create a nice uh, kind of poetry uh where it begins where it in it ends where it begins right it begins in hobbiton and it ends 
and it um, also allows the hobbits the chance to show how much they've grown in their travels and, and everything, you know, and I think that, uh, and then you also get a nice little bit of revenge against Saruman and everything, which is nice, because you really just want to fucking smack that asshole, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I loved seeing Christopher Lee play him in the movies, that was, that was great. But Saruman is a little bitch. I hate him. <laughs> the, um... But yeah, so I'm trying to think There's if there's other things I want to hit upon with this books. Um... I could see some people get not liking how it has, like, poetry throughout the books. I love that. A lot of the poetry is nice. It really hints at the the history of the books, of the world. And, you know, uh, I've read a lot of the... I have pr- pretty much all of the, um, the, the histories of Middle-earth books with all the, uh, you know, pro- poetry of, of Bellaryand and everything. And, uh, yeah, big fan of all that. Um, and uh, I like like all the, a lot of the poetry in the book. And... Um, and the way that it can reflect the different cultures that you meet in the books and the different characters and everything. Um, and yeah, above all, it gives you that sense of history and depth of time. And that's that's something that that I really just love about the books. You know, you really feel that feeling that you're um, walking into a different world with them. And, uh, you know, to this day, for anybody who's there to create a fantasy world, you know, for whatever reason, uh, maybe you're creating a uh, Dungeons & Dragons campaign, which is something I've done myself. You know, I always feel like The Lord of the Rings is a very good example of what to do, you know, create a real world around it. And, uh, you know, and that world will kind of discover itself as well as another thing, you know. Tolkien had been creating the world for years and the world was creating itself through him writing about it, you know, and was kind of a work in progress up to his death. That's part of the reason the Silmarillion didn't get published until he died was because he was working on it up until then. So, um, and I think that was something that Christopher Tolkien wanted to display in the books that the conception of the Middle Earth changed and it almost was like Tolkien was discovering these characters and and learning about them through writing about them. And that definitely happens with creation in this way. Um, but I think that because of the work that he had done with the history of of Belriand and uh, the First Age and Second Age, uh, I feel like that informs the world in the Lord of the Rings, which was to a certain extent created for a different purpose, you know, created to create this kind of um, quest format that he has uh, from the Hobbit through the uh, Lord of the Rings. And thus you feel very much like you're in a fully formed world and uh, discovering it. And you're discovering it through the eyes of you know, the hobbits who don't know as much, and you know, 
uh, it's a very effective way to to learn about all of these things. And then the hobbits themselves get you know introduced in different ways to different things like uh, you know Mary and Pippin to the Ents, and and then when they get separated, you know Mary becomes more learns more about the Crowhirim and Pippin goes to Gondor and learns more about Gondor and we learn more in their their eyes, you know. And uh, every step of the way you learn a little bit more about the world and the history, the customs and uh, the language and, you know, all these types of things. And uh, it's all there, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Something that uh, that I love about the series as well as, obviously, his kind of love of nature and everything that goes through through the books from beginning to end something that I can very much relate to. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot more that could probably be said about The Lord of the Rings. Um, I hit up on some of the major things I wanted to talk about. Uh, maybe I will dig more into the Silmarillion later on. Uh, I might swing back around and um, hit more about The Lord of the Rings as well. I might try to have somebody come on as a guest to talk about it. I think that would be... Uh, very nice. I would have liked that for this episode, but um, I didn't really have time to, to figure that out. So, um, yeah, hopefully I can get somebody to come on and, you know, come back and do a part two about Lord of the Rings and dig into other stuff and, you know, hit on the movies and all those types of stuff. But I figured to do a little introductory, and introductory episode about some of my feelings about the Lord of the Rings, particularly uh, recently listening to it uh, on the... On, uh, on audiobook while I while I worked. But I hope you guys enjoyed. Um we'll be back next week uh with Mike Hill for uh Wolf's Head by Robert E. Howard for Eldritch Tales. And uh like I said before, um we're closing this episode out with um Over Old Hills by Summoning from their album Dolkodor. Thank you for listening. Hail Satan Thank you.